Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. My name is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps a fundraiser perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, meaningful relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong givers. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insights into the hearts, minds, and connections of their donors. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Podcast listeners, the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow is finally back on the schedule. We have several dates confirmed. Since 2014, our team has been providing high-quality one-day roadshows in partnership with nonprofit leaders who want to showcase their space and provide thought-provoking and highly interactive fundraising training in their nonprofit community. Our roadshows have been described by our guest as hands-down the best professional development experience that they have ever been a part of. This experience has been described as challenging assumptions with conversation-inspiring content and new ways of thinking. If you would like to register for one of the upcoming stops on the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, just visit the link in the show notes. Good morning, Jim. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast. You and I have just uh, connected here this morning, had a few minutes of conversation, but like a lot of my guests here, this is our first... uh, Official conversation. It's, it's as if you and I are sharing our first cup of coffee. I literally have a, a quite a nice one in hand with me. I well, um, I'm looking forward to our conversation this morning. Jim, how about before we get started, we just ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners. Sure, Jason, and I am uh, I'm, I'm flattered and pleased to be on your podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. I also have a, a cup of coffee. This is the fluid of choice, I would imagine, for many of us in this profession. Uh, And I also have a very nice cup of coffee. Uh, Again, thanks, Jason, for having me on. Yeah, my name is uh, Jim Cobb. I am uh, Vice President for Philanthropy uh, at the Edmundite Missions uh, based in Selma, Alabama. Now, you may ask, what or who are the Edmundite Missions? So the the Edmundite Missions uh, was established in 1937 at the direction of the Holy See, actually, of the Vatican. Uh, uh, to address the educational, uh, health, and economic deficits experienced by the African-American community in the uh, Black Belt of the Deep South. Uh, As you know, in the 30s, Jim Crow uh, was largely largely de rigueur uh, in the Deep South. And as a result of that, uh, the deficits experienced within the African-American community were significant, right? Uh, and so the Edmonites uh, were uh, uh, asked the uh, 
Society of St. Edmund, a religious order based in Vermont, actually. They are the religious order that runs St. Michael's College. Uh, and so two uh, 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 clergymen, a Father Casey and a Father Paro, got into a uh, got into their car and went down to Selma, Alabama, and established the uh, the missions uh, there. Uh, and that was eight. We just celebrated our eighty fifth uh, anniversary. And so uh, we have evolved uh, quite significantly uh, since that time of our founding. Uh, we are the largest provider uh, of an integrated suite of social and uh, workforce development programs. Uh, in the Black Belt of the Deep South. Uh, we have four primary kind of foci for our programs, Jason. Uh, education, uh, workforce development, uh, health, and uh, nutrition. Um, and we've been based in Selma since then and work. Uh, really, our impact is in uh, four counties in and around Dallas County in Selma. Um, and uh, our work really serves as a model for a lot of the work being done in that region. So that's who the Edmundite missions are. Fascinating, Jim. And in your, uh, when you and I were exchanging some uh, information, you, you shared with me that uh, you also, this is the first reference that somebody has made, uh, that you served on a fundraising team for the uh, uh, World War I Memorial of the National Mall. What, what, tell me a little bit about that, if you don't yeah, mind. Yeah, that was, that, was, um, that was an amazing experience. So I worked for a while, uh, Jason, for several years. Um, uh, for a consulting firm in New York called Changing Our World, which yeah. is a philanthropic management and consultancy firm. They're part of the Omnicom family of companies. Um, and um, I had the great fortune. I had just finished doing work with both Sesame Street Children's Television Workshop uh, and with the UN Foundation. Uh, and we received a call from a gentleman named Daniel Dayton, who was executive director of the World War I Centennial Commission, that was established by congressional order under the Obama administration uh, to raise funds to build a memorial, national memorial, uh, to celebrate and to honor the sacrifices of American servicemen and women uh, from the First World War. Uh, and I had the great fortune of being a senior member on that team for several years. Um, the fundraising goal, uh, you're testing my memory here, I think was $50 million to build that memorial. Uh, now, the National Mall is closed. Uh, so the memorial actually was built uh, in Freedom, uh, right off of Freedom Plaza. Uh, and the memorial, we raised the funds. We had an amazing uh, advisory board made up of uh, Secretary Leon Panetta, Admiral Michael Mullen, uh, General Barry McCaffrey, uh, and a supporting team of about 40 former U.S. ambassadors. Uh, and uh, through uh, very hard work and through very generous corporate and individual support, that memorial uh, was, the fundraising goal was reached, and that memorial is now in situ. Uh, it was dedicated uh, two years ago um, and should be finished in 2023. Fascinating. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's part, of the, part of the joy and pleasure of this endeavor here is to, uh, is to have these types of conversations and understand that there is a broad diversity of organizations around our country and around our world doing doing things like you're doing both uh with with the mission there and then also in in washington your previous yeah. experience so uh jim we ask our guests to come on here with a big idea bold opinion yeah. we don't necessarily ask that you disclose what that might be and we let the conversation sort of emerge from there so what do you have for us today so I have a bold opinion. So I thought about this. So, you know, I'm never short, uh, as, as most men my age, I'm never short of opinions. So I do have one for you. Uh, and I think the question that has been 
the foremost of my mind, actually, your your request for this podcast helped me kind of uh, uh, formulate this into a question. Yeah. Is why why are the organizations? And this is a general statement, so I have to be I have to qualify it. Why are the organizations in our sector, in the nonprofit sector, afraid of their own obsolescence? Oh, that's deep. Let me let me make sure I I'm, uh, let let me let me. Uh, why are why are today's nonprofit organizations afraid of their own obsolescence? Why are they or why are they not? Why are they afraid? So our goal in this sector is to become obsolete, right? I yeah. am I am not effective. If I get up every morning as the chief fundraiser for a social services agency, a very large one, and I have to work, I've not been successful, right? I am only successful when I get up and say I can now retire, right? So building a memorial is easy, right? The thing, you raise the money, it gets built, or raising money for a capital campaign for a building or a cathedral. Once you raise the money and the cathedral's built, you're done, right? But when nonprofit organizations that are dedicated to to meeting the societal deficit, right? Yeah. When, why, why, let's look at some statistics here. I think this is important. There are 1.8 million nonprofit organizations in the United States. We've had a 20% growth in that sector in the last 20 years. Okay. Those organizations, they, they bring in about $85 billion in revenue per annum. That's both contributed and uncontributed revenue, right? They contribute over $1 trillion to the U.S. economy. That's more than 5% of the gross domestic product. From 2006 to 16, the expenses associated within our sector have increased over 50%. And the nonprofit sector, represents the third largest workforce in the United States. Would you say that this is a boom industry? Would you say that this is a growth sector? If the goal of a nonprofit organization is to become obsolete, shouldn't these numbers be in retrograde, right? We're in a growth industry. We're in a growth industry. So why is that? Why is that? Why are we as an organization or as a sector or organizations within the sector, why are we not going out of business? Well, I th- you know, Jim, it's, it's very, it is, I don't, I don't consider it to be any co- uh, coincidence that last night. So at, last night I teach a, a social entrepreneurship course over at the local college. And I was talking to my students about this very subject last evening. Um, and we were, di- I was differentiating between, uh, trying to give 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 my students some clarity between the way that I sort of see mission mission statements versus vision statements consistent with the text that we use for the particular class, and and one of the ways that I characterize it is is that that the vision that vision is sort of that ultimate point. I oftentimes refer to in the class the the Santa Monica Pier that's at the end of I ten uh, on the west where you know on the west that's as far far west as you get on Interstate ten, um, but I say that. Uh, you know, the part of what I say to your point, Jim, is that if, if the vision is achieved, it puts you out of business. It, you've, you know, it makes you obsolete. It's unnecessary. You know, you, you, you've, you've accomplished your goal. Um, 
But I think, but I think as this relates to fundraising, and I'm guessing this is where we're going to go with this conversation today. I think part of this is also what my contemporary critique of my my critique of contemporary practices are is that that the reason in some ways that we're afraid my answer to your question my immediate answer to your question is we don't want to have those high expectations jim to put ourselves out of business is to have expectations of ourselves and our donors that perhaps we're afraid to have i i i think jason that may be part of it i i I think I think also, I think we have to admit that the nonprofit sector is big business, right? It's big business. It is. It's big business. It's a lucrative business. Um, and I think to some degree. <laughs> well, right, right. I mean, uh, so my, 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 my suggestion of, of low expectations is essentially one of perhaps, yes, because I would definitely put the big business. Sorry for interrupting you, but yeah, no, I would no, you're put, fine. I, I would definitely put the the big business reality. There's a lot of there's a lot of for profit enterprises that that keeping us in business and keeping our hands out asking for more uh, is quite lucrative for them. I guess we well, but say. but the for profit sector is expected to do that in a capitalistic society, right? So a for profit company is only successful when demand for its services increase, right? Because they are they are an organization that is driven by they're an organization that is driven by demand, and that is appropriate, right? That is appropriate, and it is good. I mean, look at your look at look at your stock prices uh, over the last six months, right? So, so yeah. they're an organization driven by demand. We're an industry that's driven by societal deficit and individual and collective need, right? So, the longer that we stay, in, the longer that we, the longer that we do not deploy programs that really address the predicates of the issues that we exist for or the issues that give us shape and form and function, then we, then we are just, we're, we're just spinning our wheels, right? So the, the question becomes, I think there are two questions for me, Jason, in this is, is that when an organization has a vision statement, every organization has a vision statement, does the organization maintain organizational fidelity to deploying programs that will enable that vision, okay? Or do organizations become so convinced of their own mythology that they believe that that if the services they provide goes away, then there'll be great harm, right? The goal of an organization should be to get to a point where their services should go away, right, where there's no need for them anymore. But to say to an organization, your job is to go out of business. I, I had a uh, I had a conversation once with a, with a colleague, and he was telling me how important his organization was. And I said, your organization does important work, but what are you doing to get out of business? And he looked at me and said, well, we can never get out of business. I said, well, you believe your own mythology. You believe your own mythology. So I think it's about deploying programs that that are both sustainable and address the predicates of why we exist, right? We need to really ask the question: Why do these organizations exist? All right, what are, what are the root causes of the issues that they're addressing, and what programs are they deploying to address the root causes and not just the symptoms of the problem? Well, I th- so so Jim, this writing project that a lot of my guests have, have heard me talking about that I hope will wrap up here perhaps by the end of the year. I have been sort of I've I've been really making sense of sort of the history, the 21st, the 20th century history of how sort of contemporary fundraising practices have really come about. 
And Jim, the more you sort of get the more you sort of get down into the weeds about how our our underlying logic is, it's it's basically a it's a it's a it's a consumer driven it's a consumer driven sort of mindset that says like anything in our consumer society, we're never supposed to actually achieve what the, what the product says that we're supposed to achieve. There's a certain level of inerrant dissatisfaction that's supposed to be built into the products and services that we buy in the marketplace. And unfortunately, Jim, I would say that that's, that's the inherent flaw or one of the inherent flaws in, in essentially that, that answers your question is that we've embraced this notion of consumerism or the notion that the donor is a consumer to such an extent that that we're fearful, whether we explicitly admit it or not, we're fearful of the idea that if we don't if we don't keep the donor dissatisfied or if we don't if 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 perhaps we actually solve some of our problems um that maybe i mean how many of us should just be more confident of the fact that if we just solve a couple of these problems that we're always raising money for there there's always another problem around the corner that we can go raise money for you know there's an endless number of problems on this sort of this this broken planet am i right i i i'm trying to conceptualize what you said i think i think there's a bit of truth to what you're saying i think there is there is some there are threads of of truth in there but I think there's also, at least in the social services sector, yeah. I mean, you look at. I think. I think we. I think we treat our donors with, as as being way too fragile, right? So the the hardest thing to raise money for is advocacy work, right? Is advocacy work. Yeah. But at the end, but at the end of the day, advocacy work drives real change, societal change, right? Eventually, eventually drives real change. Um, if you look look at the civil rights movement in the 1960s, right? What what secured the vote or what secured what se- what secured what gave security to the vote to the African American community in the 1960s was ultimately advocacy work, right? Ultimately was advocacy work at the highest levels with Dr. King and and the, uh, the Southern Christian Leadership Coalition spending a lot of time in Washington doing a lot of talking and a lot of demonstrating right? so but that's the hardest thing to raise raise money for and i think when we start looking at these very complex societal issues and trying to talk to our donors about deploying solutions that really address the root causes of these problems we're afraid of getting them angry so it's a lot easier to ask somebody for example for money for a feeding program than it is to ask somebody for money for a program that really addresses why there are people going hungry in Dallas County, Alabama. All right. You, you, we don't want to go down that rabbit hole. I mean, we do, but organizations typically do not. Okay. Typically do not. I mean, if you look at what um, the 9 11 fund uh, and how they were able finally to secure money for the 9 11 fund, it was through advocacy work. Right, something that shouldn't have had to be advocated. But, 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 but Jim, that's 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 kind of my point. The idea that the consumer. So, if you think of the donor as the consumer, that's you and I are speaking the same. I think I think in a lot of ways we're probably making the same argument. In a consumer society, the the donor, the donor slash consumer is supposed to feel like they they alone are the king that they can solve all the world's problems. We sort of individualize it. We package it in these neat sort of charity like packages. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it actually can't get the job done. 
I mean, that's what that's what Walmart and Amazon and McDonald's does for us, you know, on the consumer side. And I think the flaw in our thinking is we've embraced the same thinking. You know, Walmart, Walmart and McDonald's are in the business of making sure that we come through those doors every day, buy cheap shit and always have to come back for more the next day. We're never actually solving the problem. We're never learning how to prepare better food. We're never learning how to buy better products. That's essentially your critique. Jason, I'm glad you did not include Burger King onion rings in that <laughs> litany of bad foods because I would have had to hang up the phone immediately. Um, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think. Yeah, I think we're, we're putting we may be putting different colored cloth, the same cloth, different paint jobs. Yeah, yeah, probably. But, I, but yeah. I think. But I think the other thing too, Jason, really is that if you look, we don't ask people to solve problems. We ask people to meet need, and there's a difference there. There's a real difference there. If you look at any, I spent two years as a senior advancement officer in one of the largest international relief agencies in the world, right? We didn't ask people to address child trafficking. We didn't deploy programs to address child trafficking. We asked people to support safe houses. All right. So we're asking people to meet need. We're not asking people to solve problems. And if you look at how nonprofits talk to each other in this sector, if you start having these conversations, they can get really ugly really fast. You know, for example, feeding programs. The problem with feeding programs, both in this country and internationally, is that we're feeding people, but we're not nourishing them. Right. Okay, we're not nourishing them. Okay. Yes. So, so when we start having conversations with large organizations that feed people, very laudable work, and ask them how they're engaging regional farmers or what is their plan to promote fresh produce within their within their feeding streams it gets kind of ugly really kind of quick because that's hard and you may have to diminish the number of people that you're reaching in these feeding programs right so the question then becomes the question then becomes one of does this sector because the numbers i, I reviewed with you earlier this is a boom business that we're in you can't argue that. It's a boom business. It's a growing business. I would love to have these stats and represent a commercial product, right? Um, but have the problems that we've addressed grown 20% in the last 10 years? I would say no, they haven't. They haven't. The core of the societal deficits that we deal with, at least domestically, are the same. They may be a little bit more complex, but they're essentially the same, right? So what's going on here, right? What's well, going Jim, on Jim, Jim, if we... So one of the things that I'm learning to to push back on is this idea that we have we've convinced ourselves that we have to let the donor always feel like a hero in the story that they're always sort of a cheat and and I'm I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this if we begin to press our donors with the idea of actually solving problems then rather than just sort of immediate needs essentially the difference between what a lot of people are talking about the difference between actually achieving justice and and focusing on momentary charity providing momentary charity for some, you know giving them a a bowl of soup or something does does the does the does the notion of being a hero in in their own little story whatever's going on in their own little heads sort of begin to diminish. I mean, that's part of the narrative that you, that are that are, you know, if we had a if we had a hundred fundraisers in a room and especially in a you know direct response seminar or something, they're gonna tell you one of the you know fundamental formulas that has to be built into every appeal that leaves your organization or mine has to make the donor feel like they're a hero. 
Well, that's that's good business, right? Especially for the direct response community, right? That's good business. Sure. Um, <laughs> I, I don't I, I don't think it's an either or, Jason, right? I, but I think it's an either and a little bit more. I, I think first of all, nonprofit organizations have to develop sustainable programs that deal in a meaningful way with the predicates of the problems that they are dealing with. They have to be robust programs. They have to be well thought out. They have to be sustainable. They have to have measurable impacts, all right? And packaging those programs and presenting them to their donors. If we're saying the donor has to feel like a hero, if that's important, if that's the if that's the onion ring in my dinner, if you would please, all right. If that's all right, if that's important, then we have to present programs that are worthy of funding. But if I look at many of the organizations in this sector, if I look at their program suite, their program suite really hasn't evolved in the last twenty years. It may have grown in scope, it may have gotten a bit more complex, but it hasn't evolved, right? So. If we're presenting sustainable programs that have measurable impact and begin to change the narrative around the problems that we solve, is somebody going to feel more like a hero by supporting a program like that as opposed to supporting somebody getting a bowl of soup? I'm a donor to many organizations. And if somebody said, Jim, you could have an impact on rooting out hunger by this or providing a bowl of soup, I'm going to root out hunger. Now, understand. There are always going to be people that need that bowl of soup. All right. So we always have got to, we've always got to meet the needs of those that have profound need. All right. I understand that. But I believe that it's incumbent upon many of these organizations to develop sustainable programs that are worthy of investment that drive sustainable change and address the predicates. If you go to the corporate or the foundation side, that's what they're funding. They get it. If you look at the changes in corporate and foundation funding over the last decade, it has changed profoundly. Just look at the changes, for example, in the Ford Foundation. It has changed profoundly. They want. I, I, but Jim, I, I mean, you're, you're, the argument I feel like you're the argument I feel like you're making is very similar to the argument that Darren Walker's making at the Ford Foundation. But it sounds like you're a little more on the fence. You know, Darren Walker in his, in his most recent book is talking about this difference between charity and justice. Yes. And I think the argument that we've – I think this, the pitch, the narrative that we've sold to the donor for too long is the charity narrative. It's the story of give them a bowl of food and sort of feed them for today and they'll come back tomorrow and need more. And that makes you feel like a hero. But that doesn't ultimately achieve justice. And I think what what, what Walker's argument is – and what I think he's pushing for at the Ford Foundation, and I think this is this is perhaps the, I, I, I think we, I think we've ridden the fence on this for too long, and consequent or, or perhaps we 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 played the charity card for so long. Now we're riding the fence, and I think at some point some of us are just going to have to leap over to the justice side and say, look, we're not going to. It's not going to be an and or sort of both sides sort of thing. Some of us to actually achieve that. To actually achieve that goal, you've actually just got to narrowly focus on achieving that goal. But, but Jason, my question is, why, why does the sector continue, consistently engage, if you look at charity and justice, right, which is a great way of looking at this. Yeah. Yeah. Why do we engage in just that? Why, why is there such an emphasis on the charity side? Because it, Jim, I, it, because it, keeps, well, them, it, keeps, them, it keeps them employed. 
Well, it's good for business. It's big business, right? It's, it's good for the business. It's good for the CRM companies because the CRM companies keep getting names. Therefore, we have to keep putting data right. in it. It's good for the direct response companies because the direct response companies keep selling us new acquisition strategies. And it's good for the fundraiser because they never have to raise expectations so high so as to scare the, the, the donor that they currently have of. And it's good for Giving Tuesday because we, you know, I mean, it's good for everybody it's around. Big, it's, it's big business. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think it's good for the people that we serve. No, it's it, not. It's, uh, it's right. big business. It's big business. And, and who wants to lose their job? Right. So my, my point is this, is that I, I don't think it's a question of, when will we? I think it's a question of we have to. We have to. I, I, I can give you an example at the mission. So the missions has been around for 85 years and, you know, food is in our DNA, right? The black belt of the Deep South is also called the stroke belt. Somebody living in Dallas County, Alabama has a higher mortality rate than somebody living in Bangladesh. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, and, and in this country, that is an atrocity. It's an atrocity. And I use that word without moderation. Okay. So. If you look over 65 years of our history, our feeding programs, and we distribute 400 tons of groceries a year to the homebound. We provide over 400,000 meals a year right? Um, in a separate initiative. If you look over 75 years, our work didn't change. We got a new executive director named Chad McEachran who said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute. We're not helping people because we're getting our food donated, right, from large food banks, et cetera, high salt, high processed, et cetera, good people. And so the question was become, you know, Chad asked the question, how can we move from feeding to nourishing people? How can we begin to address the health predicates that are plaguing this community, that are driving down workforce development, that are driving down educational excellence, all these things? And so we started, we understood that the Black Belt of Alabama has one of the most robust produce markets in the country. That's why they call it the Black Belt. It's the soil, right? So we started working with regional African-American farmers that had been historically denied credit because of discriminatory practice. And we asked them a question, how can we buy our produce from you? The problem is because these farmers were denied credit, they could not produce ahead of demand. They, they would produce 10 tons of okra, but I didn't need 10 tons of okra on April the 1st. I needed that okra to be cold packed so that we could use it throughout the year. So we began a micro-granting process to African-American farmers in the Black Belt to enhance their ability to produce ahead of our demand. So because of that initiative, if you look at the sodium that we've reduced from our feeding programs, you could line each grain of salt up on top of each other. You'd have the Washington Monument. All right. And we've enhanced the economic position of African-American farmers in the Black Belt to the point where farming now is drawing in younger people. So we've now created an economic engine. Within Dallas County, we've improved the dietary of the people that engage in our programs, and we've taken our lessons learned and imported it to the high school and to public learning. So this is what we're doing in terms of developing those sustainable solutions. So we've evolved the programs. We've made the investments. And, I mean, it was involved so much that Hilton gave us a multimillion-dollar commitment. You know, Hilton never invests, rarely invests in the U.S., right? So a multi-year commitment to build out these workforce development programs in and around nutrition. So that's what I mean about the evolution of programs. How are we evolving our programs to address the predicates of the services that we provide? In the midst, Jim, in the midst of the pandemic, I was listening. I was reading a number of books. I was listening to a lot of the 
sort of the commentary that was coming from fundraising experts about how to navigate sort of the, the future and where this would go. And it was somewhat ironic because we had not experienced, uh, you know, something of this magnitude and, you know, since the, um, since the Spanish flu or something, none of which would have been relevant. You know, the world was a completely different world. And yet we had all these experts that were sort of telling us how this was going to sort of play out. But the thing that I, I wonder where this fits into your question, the thing that I sort of started to figure out is, which I think is in some ways one of the reasons why we don't like the idea of obsolescence and why we don't lean into the idea of actually sort of shutting our organizations down is because we want to live in a much more predictable world. And that predictability comes with that charitable impulse. So the donor's impulse to give charitably, to give that person that bowl of food, rather than having to push them to give it a level that would actually solve this problem or to actually change their behavior, right? Change their behavior in very significant monumental sort of ways, the way that they see, you know, paradigm shifting sort of change. I think it's because we like a very predictable and a certain degree of certainty. And so we all interact, we design our worlds. And maybe that's part of the reason why you're sort of provoking this conversation this morning is because our world is becoming less and less predictable and therefore making it almost impossible to even make any ground even on the charitable, on the charity sort of side of this conversation. Does that make sense? No, yeah, it makes sense. I don't agree with it. I, 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 I see the merit of the argument. First of all, I don't think there are any fundraising experts. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. I don't. You know, I just I don't. I wrestle with that. Hey, I mean, brother, you worked for uh, you worked for one yeah, of the ones in New York. What? Yeah, were, well, you, no, they, I mean, there are people with different troughs of experience and different passions, right? I'm, right. I'm not an expert. If I was an expert, I wouldn't be sitting here. Um, you know, I can write a book, I guess. Um, I, and I and I don't. I think what we do. Jason and I could be wrong, man. I don't know. I'm not a I'm not a fundraising expert. I think I think we make things way too complex. And I, and I think I'm always driven back to if you look at every great story, what's the downfall of the hero in that story? And it's the old it's the old notion of hubris of pride, right? So I think I think the nonprofit sector in this country, you know, why does England have 148 non- thousand nonprofits and we have ten times that? Now? I think I think. Many of the nonprofits in this country believe their own mythology, right? They believe that if the services they provide were to go away, go away, the, the people that they serve would be an extremist. My question is, what do you need to go? What do you need to do in order so that if you go away, your people won't be an extremist anymore, right? And I tend to think, I tend to think it's an issue of hubris, but I also think it's an issue of economics. And I know that may not be a popular viewpoint, but I think it's all largely uh, uh, it's largely where those two things intersect. It's largely where those two things intersect between hubris and economics. I really believe that. I'm not saying that people in these organizations are bad. You don't uh, think it's you don't think it's fear. You don't think it's you don't think it's it's risk avoidance and fear. So I'm putting it on the other side. I don't, I don't think it's who I, I don't I don't see I don't see our organization as arrogant. I see them fearful and and risk avoidant. I think they're risk of. I think changing the narrative, they're afraid of losing donors. Absolutely. Yeah. I think absolutely they're afraid. But again, this goes back to my economic argument. If you start isolating donors and losing them, you're going to lose money, right? Um, so, I, I, but when you talk about an unpredictable world, you know, I'm 58, and 
my world, I mean, everybody said COVID's going to change the world. COVID really hasn't changed the world, you know, <laughs> except for the people that, except for the people that passed. And that was a yes, tragedy. Yes. Uh, but, you know, I, I grew up in the eighties, you know, when every day I woke up expecting nuclear bombs to rain on us. And if I look at my father, I mean, they were engaged in a world war. I mean, so the world has not become any less predictable or any more predictable. I think human nature by its very nature is highly unpredictable. Um, and so I, I, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't, I, I think it's one of hubris in economics. I think it's one of we, people need us. We need to be here. We've been here for a hundred years. We need to be here. And, you know, I, I think that's a big part of that. And, and I think to your point, I, I'm a, I, I think by changing the, the, the narrative from charity to justice, we're afraid of losing a big part. I think we're afraid of isolating our donors. I think we're afraid of isolating our donors. So to that point, we're not really speaking truthfully to them. Right. We're not speaking. Yeah. And, and that's and that just gets at my consumer argument. The, the, yeah. We have to tell we basically have to tell a story to the consumer to keep them coming back. And they always have to be dissatisfied with the experience to the extent that they're continuously shopping around. But that keeps the machine running. That's what keeps yeah. the, the process going. And ultimately, you know, if anything should be unpredictable about our world right now, it should be what, and I think this is ultimately to sort of bring us back to where you started. We should be that most unpredictable component of our current economy as a sector, because we should be the ones that should be taking, in my opinion, should be taking on the most risks, yep. reaching the furthest yep. and, and taking the chance that we might very unpredictably solve a problem so that we can move on to something else. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the numbers that I reviewed with you in the beginning of the podcast, this should not be a growth industry. We should not be the third largest workforce in the United States. Right. We, should be. we should not be contributing 5% to GDP. When you think about that, that horrifies me. That absolutely horrifies me. And what that tells me is I ask the question of the sector, what are we doing to go out of business? And for the last 20 years, you know, the question has been, what can we do to grow? I mean, just the numbers reveal that. So, so Jim, help me with this because I've thought about this, and, and you've got me, you've got me thinking, and I don't know that I've articulated this very well elsewhere. In some ways, I think what you and I are saying is, is that we're betraying. There's an underlying logic. I think there's an underlying logic. Think about, think about the other statistic that we haven't talked about here today, and it's that the uh, the 20 million donors that apparently are not giving to our organization now that were giving to us a couple decades ago. I think there's an underlying logic that we have betrayed that the donor knows that we're supposed to actually be that type of risk-taking organization that actually solves problems and therefore makes ourselves obsolete. But because we're never actually doing that, I think we're betraying this implicit I think the donor doesn't believe it. You can tell them that they're the hero all day long, but if they don't if if whatever you're letting them be the hero as a part of never actually gets done, they just stop believing it. I, I think that's part of it. I think that's part of it. I also I mean, we could do another 45 minutes on this. I've got some thoughts on this, but I you know, the loss those 20 million you know, I ask what is the difference between the 20 million that we've lost and the 20 million that we haven't gained place. Right, right. What is what is the difference there? And there's a lot of thoughts on that. I had an interesting conversation with my 15 and 16 year old nieces about uh, about social justice. I said to them, well, "What are you doing on the social justice issue?" Well, we're on TikTok talking out. And my response was, "Well, why don't you get on buses like your uncle did? Go down there and get into some trouble." 
Oh, we couldn't do that. I, you know, I don't, I don't know. I have some thoughts on it, but they're largely uninformed. Uh, but they are opinionated. Um, so I, I, yeah, I, I think, I, yeah, I think the sector has, to a certain degree, lost some, lost some courage in that. I, I would agree with you. I think that's accurate. See, I, I think that's a pretty profound statement. I don't know that I've, I've had anybody. In- I, I think, I think we betrayed. I think to a large degree. Present organization excluded, uh, and others as well. And I'm painting with a very broad brush here, and I'm going to get a lot of hate mail. But I think to some degree, the sector in the aggregate, in the aggregate, Jason, make sure you underline that. I think we betrayed, I think we betrayed the people that we serve. I think we have. And, and it's because we've gotten into the business of charity and we have not figured out how we get into the business of justice. And that, to me, that's what that's what that's what keeps me working at fifty eight years old. And to be frank, that's what keeps me that's what keeps me up at night, right? So, yeah. So, so Jim, last thought. So, one of the I read a book a number of years ago called "The Fourth Turning," and the fourth turning is by a group of sort of futurist historians who basically look at sort of the cycles of human history. And they talk about this civic organization, which we generally recognize as sort of this, they would say that every fourth generation sort of experiences their life in the world in very much the same way that four generations prior and four generations later will experience it. And part of what I think is a hopeful thought for you and I both, which is part of the language that I'm sort of weaving into a lot of my conversations is, is that the millennial generation, so the generation that's subsequent to me and a lot of what my, my children will sort of experience is a very civic-minded, citizen-like generation of people. And and that's that person that, like you're talking to, the, the young person you were just referring to, um, I think they may actually sort of see the world differently than a, maybe a consumer, more consumer-oriented sort of perspective and actually start asking some of these harder questions. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And I would agree with you. But I think the challenge in that generation is what I would call constructive organizing. How are they organizing to drive change, not organizing to be heard? There's a difference. It's easy to be heard. It's harder to drive change. Well, I don't think. Uh, right. And, and, and I and I, I mean, you and I are you and I are older. We're more we're I, I think part of I think part of that organizing that you're talking about, I think, in some ways is going to come through the, the technology that previous civically minded organizations. I mean, they didn't have iPhones. And right now they're just figuring out what the capabilities are with the with the iPhones. And some you can, people your age and my age don't even have a real sense of what these things are capable of. And it's an iPhone, Jason. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. But, 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 but you know what I mean? I, I think it's, uh, I mean, my son, my son on the other side of this wall here is, is, is 20 years old, soon to be 20 years old. And he doesn't know what the hell he's going to do. But I, but I, I think, I think the, I think if I look at sort of history and think about what generation sort of he represents using this fourth turning sort of framework, he, his generation might take, take to heart some of what you and I are asking today differently than others will. Or have. Well, when I, I hope, I hope that happens. Um, I will be hopefully alive to see it. If not, I'll shuttle off the coil with great anticipation and hope. So. <laughs> Jim, we uh, we've had a wonderful conversation. Yeah, it sounds like we've fun. we've provoked enough. Uh, we've provoked enough of each other's thinking that we could probably have you back. You're always welcome back. Um, people people who listen to the conver- people who are listening oftentimes are interested in reaching out to the person in your seat more so than mine how would you like people to do that 
Uh, if, it, if it doesn't include a firebomb, uh, they can reach me uh, on my LinkedIn uh, profile, or they can uh, reach me on email at Jim, J-I-M, Kopp, K-O-P-P, 1964. It was a great year at gmail.com, Jim Kopp, 1964, gmail.com. Jim, we'll be sure to put some uh, information in the show notes about your organization. Uh, it has certainly been a pleasure, and you're always welcome back. The pleasure was mine, and have a great, great week. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must-read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all-too-familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent, challenges are ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.